Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa idea in the 21st century. In a lot of ways, as soon as you name something and classify it, you've ruined it. In this, the 25th episode of the Iowa Idea podcast, I sit down with Bob Kasinchek, perhaps my favorite taxonomist in the whole world. Bob is a taxonomist and senior manager of client solutions at Synaptica, living in Albuquerque, New Mexico. After early training in philosophy and a decade studying and teaching music, Bob spent eight years designing and developing information projects before joining Synaptica in 2019. His current interests include knowledge graphs, gamelan, and soup. Bob and I discuss the importance of taxonomy and ontology as they relate to categorizing, organizing, and making sense of the informational world around us. Pushing along the edge of axiology, we talk about the ethics of labeling and categorizing. We also dig into more fun and interesting taxonomy issues, such as the categorization and debate of calling a hot dog a sandwich. We also try to understand where the hell grocery stores display pine nuts. Finally, we cover humans in the loop and why the last mile of AI is still a ways away. I really appreciated Bob's advice. Let the example generate the prose. It was an honor having Bob on the podcast. I'd like to thank him for joining me, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Bob, thanks so much for joining me on the Iowa Idea podcast. Uh, if you don't mind, for, for me and the listeners, could you tell me a little bit about yourself? Sure. My name's Bob Kasinchek, and I'm a taxonomist ontologist uh, working in the information science uh, sector. And I know Matt from the Information Architecture Conference, formerly the Information Architecture Summit, where we run in some of the same... Um, I would say like overlapping circles, not exactly the same uh, right. part of the discipline. Uh, I live in Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, sunny Albuquerque, New Mexico. And um, I don't know where else, I'm not sure where that's, else I should start. No, that's, that's great. A couple, uh, a couple things before we dig into is that you do have a strong Iowa connection. Is that right? I do. I was um, not born in, but from ages five up through high school, I lived in Cedar Rapids. Um, so I'm in Eastern Iowa, not by birth, but by, you know, it's primary school upbringing. We moved to Cedar Rapids when my dad got out of the military in 79. Um, uh, he got out of the Air Force to go work for Rockwell Collins, which no longer exists. I think they got bought by Boeing or somebody. Anyway, that's so. But uh, so he was a computer programmer and a pilot and um, went to work for Rockwell building radios for space shuttles and black boxes for airplanes and navigation systems and stuff and so i i grew up um i grew up in eastern iowa and cedar rapids and spent plenty of time uh in iowa city iowa city was the cool place that was 30 miles away that we would run down to as high school kids to get away from cedar rapids because you know you guys had used clothing stores and head shops and uh <laughs> record stores and like uh you know iowa city was the cool uh i don't know Cedar cool, Rapids cool cousin. <laughs> cool cousin that we would like run off and escape to. I, I even remember like, um, I think senior year, I had some weird high school schedule where I had like this weird like hour and three quarter block of time um, once a week. And I would like jump in my Mustang and go down to Iowa City and get a slice of pizza <laughs> and drive back in time for my calculus class. 
<laughs> right on. Uh, so, uh, did you? Was it college that that took you away? Is that when you left? It was, and I looked at some places in Iowa. I looked at Grinnell. Um, uh, I even looked at. Uh, is it Luther? Is that what's up in the northeast yeah. corner? Yeah, the Dakota um, area. Yeah, uh, yeah, and uh, eventually, sort of decided I wanted to get further away from home. <laughs> um, so my sister and I sort of both uh, left Iowa. Yeah, but I went to New Mexico uh, for college, and then from there to Boston for more college, and Austin for more college, and finally we got tired of not living in New Mexico and my wife and I moved back about nine years ago. We've been back. Great. So I uh, wanted to dig in on a couple of a couple of the labels that you would use to describe yourself. The first as a uh, taxonomist. What does a taxonomist do? So taxonomy as a discipline comes from the library science world and the information science world. Taxonomy originally, um, most people who don't know anything about taxonomy and have already gotten over that it's not taxidermy, <laughs> know it from Linnaeus. So Lin Car Carolus Linnaeus came up with a classification of plants and animals. So you kind of go down a hierarchical tree structure. So all plants have some characteristics and of those some are you know trees and some are bushes and some are flowers or whatever and you sort of categorize them down a hierarchy where every place in the hierarchy inherits all of its predecessors so right if all if some plants are trees and some plants are flowers all trees and flowers both have all the characteristics of plants so it's a hierarchical way of classifying um things in labels so the modern information science discipline of taxonomy sort of takes that um, hierarchical concept and abstracts it from plants and animals into the realm of organizing information. So if I have, um, let's say I have a bunch of documents I need to organize, and I mean not 20, I mean like 800,000 documents I need to organize. Right. Um, and um, I have a website, a portal where people can search my documents. Well, free text search only gets you so far, right? So if I have 800,000 science articles, I'm a publisher, right? I have 29 journals and I have 800,000 articles on science. And I'm now, and you're a researcher, and you come to my portal and you type in Mercury because you're looking for information. You're looking for articles about planets. Well, what are you going to get? You're going to get articles about planets. You're going to get articles about silvery, metallical, chemical elements. You're going to get articles about cars maybe. And maybe if someone's feeling fanciful, you know, Roman gods. And all you wanted was planets. So searching for words and documents is not good enough for very large repositories of content. So the idea is that we can categorize the, um, these things using a controlled vocabulary, which is what a taxonomy is. So basically, the way I explain it um, for people who are not coming from this world is people right. understand hashtags, right? You can go on Twitter, you can go on um, YouTube, you can go on a social media site and you can hashtag a post, you can hashtag a video, hashtag whatever. So the problem becomes that those tags are not controlled. So if you and I and three other people all watch a video about a horse, and you tag your video, hashtag horses, and I tag my video, hashtag equestrians, because I'm a jerk, and somebody else tags theirs, hashtag OMG, look at the pretty white horsey, one, one, exclamation point. And then you go to find all the videos about horses, you're going to find the one you tag, but not the one I tagged or the OMG person tagged. So the idea right. is to have a controlled list of tags that are the only tags that you're allowed to apply to a body of content so that when you go to search for it, you can get all the articles about Mercury, the planet, and only the articles about Mercury, the planet. So the job of the taxonomist, broadly speaking, is to create controlled hierarchical vocabulary structures that are used as tags to tag objects, 
electronic content objects. Those could be videos, those could be photos, they could be tweets, they could yeah. be documents so that someone can find and, and retrieve them. So broadly speaking, I think, coming from a, a classics background, it's really the science of categorization and naming things. So it really yeah. goes beyond hashtag tagging for papers and it's about how we label things um and that has ethical and philosophical uh, ramifications as well yeah yeah thank you uh and you know because one of the things you were talking two things going way back uh is you know i feel like uh not way way back like in the classics but like even <laughs> early early days of the web i always felt like the, the library science approach those are like the ogs of the web right that it was yeah. How can this have structure and meaning because it's this weird nebulous thing and and that intersection from I feel like from inside out is how do we make this discoverable and understandable and then from the outside in how do I get things that that I'm looking for make sense and because if if you provide too much information it's like providing no information the people just disengage and when you talk about like digital records now the it's not it's not sorting out 20 papers right? it's hundreds right. of thousands especially especially in, in research documentation how can i quickly find these and uh if you don't know if you're if you don't know specifically that you're looking for an author right you like how do i find out more about this topic you can be overwhelmed pretty quickly is that a fair kind of understanding of it totally is and there's a big diff there's a, there are a number of audiences to service because yeah. one of the so i don't have a library science background i have a classics and then a music right. background so i came into this 10 years ago with a different perspective so i didn't go to library school but one of the first things i learned is that search and browse are not the same thing if i go to the bookstore and i'm looking for the new haruki murakami novel i can go to the fiction section go to m and like browse for the thing that's not the same as going to the bookstore and being like i need a new book yeah here are some things i'm interested in and you have to be able to service both um and in fact i think there are more kinds of information seeking behavior which has been covered at the conference we'd like to go yeah. to but let's just take those two for an example those are very different information seeking behaviors i have a thing i need to find i know what it is and i need more information on this topic or i'm interested in this stuff and i want to see what kind of things are out there that that i want to discover yeah what do, what do you uh when you're doing doing work when you're, you're applying your skills what do you what do you see as like almost standard or are there basic patterns or, or questions that clients struggle with uh i don't know if that question makes sense but i'm just say a little more about what you intend by that question yeah so thinking thinking about like they maybe they realize they have a mess right they mm -hmm. have just lots and lots and lots of stuff um are you brought like you're brought in to help organize it your help you know to make it more more usable from a business perspective i think just the value that they can get their content out there but they're not going to get it out there if it's still lost in a, a deep well and one of the problems i think that you're describing especially in an organization of any size um is that each little department will start to to have their own strategies they'll develop their own little lists of topics even if they're not thinking about taxonomy i'd like to say taxonomy is like teapots everyone has a couple of them lying around in a cabinet somewhere even if they're they don't remember that that's there so there are you know um, website navigation menus there are you know tables of contents back of the book indices pull down lists um, and so let's take like a small publisher, for example, you might have a marketing department and a research department and a membership uh, outreach department and a 
sales department and a content department. And each one of these places has their own siloed content bits that other people can't get to. And they use their own ways to categorize them, whether that's a folder structure or through some kind of tagging system in a SharePoint or something. Mm -hmm. But it's super distributed and it's siloed and it's spread. And so one of the first jobs is to get them to come together to realize that their lists overlap. And what they really need is one central place where they can have all those topics to, to apply to the documents so that they're shareable. So everyone goes through the process of information organization. It's categorizing as part of what we do as humans. Like I'm sure like many, I don't know if this is a Gen X thing or not, yeah. but like many people, I go to someone whose house, I'm interested in like how they organize their CDs. If okay. people still have CDs, yeah. how they organize their bookshelves. Is it by topic? Is it by color? Is it by date? Is it by size? Is it, you know, or is it just like whatever fit on the shelf? Like, because just like we were talking about 20 documents versus 800,000 documents when things hit a critical if you have 20 CDs you can just put them on a shelf right because you could just browse the whole thing if you have a thousand CDs now you have a problem and even before I got in this business I used to struggle with this do I mix the classical ones in with the pop ones do I separate them by genre and then alphabetize them or like now this is by a group and this is a compilation and this is a band and do is this by the orchestra or the composer and so you are sort of faced with these information it's a metadata challenge without having a metadata record so right um, we all start to organize um, things, but as any information worker or worker that uses a computer in their daily job knows, you don't know that you're setting up your eventual file structure when you do it. You're just, I need a folder for this, and I need a folder for this, and I need a folder for this. And like, right, the, the rule in psychology is that we can quickly cognize, you know, more or less seven things. If you have a list of seven things, you can look at it and glance at it and be like, oh, got it. If you have 20 things, you can't really just glance at it anymore. And if you have a right. hundred or a thousand or a hundred thousand things, you really need to, to be able to structure things to find them. So I think in a broad sense, what we do when we come into an organization that needs help that, excuse me, that has a mess yes. is help them figure out what they have. So content inventory um, and taxonomy or category inventory is one of the first things um, to try and discover what's already there and, and how people are thinking about it. So I used to do these, interviews when we would go into places to build taxonomies um, and I was trying to you know work up this standard set of questions to try and get insight into how they did things and at one point I went to a new client um, a big nonprofit uh, cancer publishing medical organization and one of my questions was like how do you organize the files on your own personal folder people did not like that <laughs> They were not interested in telling me and were very suspicious about why I wanted to know about how they organized the files on their personal drive. So apparently there's a limit to that kind of um, questioning. But um, it's very hard. If you're thinking about setting up a portal for your content, you can't do user research in a way that you already have a product that people are testing and using. It's all speculative. So you kind of have to let the content be the user. And so it's a very content-focused uh, way of organizing. Now, conversely, if you have a well-established portal where you can get data, or maybe you're organizing products for sale instead yeah. of um, content. So one of the other ways I like to explain taxonomy to people who don't understand it is I say, you know, you ever go to an e-commerce website? And they're like, yeah, of course. I'm like, well, sometimes you type stuff in. Sometimes you browse that list of categories that like unfurls like a file menu. I'm like, yeah, so you go to like, 
you know, clothing, men's clothing, you know, outerwear. They're like, yeah, like that's taxonomy. Like that is a hierarchical organizing system that's helping you narrow down what you want as you drive through the menu. I'm making like hand gestures. Yep. Like, are you really <laughs> Um, <laughs> um, to, to sort of um, ground their experience that they have been dealing with taxonomy. Um, and even when you don't browse that and you type ahead and stuff starts getting suggested to you, right? that may come from um, a controlled list. It may also come from user, you know, previous user, user behavior. Cool. Thank you. I feel you. like I talked around your question quite a lot. No, no, that's that's great. I want to dig in too, because uh, when you introduce yourself, you also brought in uh, reference to ontology. Uh, so, for folks listening that that might not be familiar with ontology, can you uh, give a little? Yeah, bit Yeah, I think discussion? I don't have as good of a canned answer as yeah. I do for taxonomy. So, ontology is um, a slightly more complex branch of information science that as that is at least as interested in the relationships between things as the things themselves. So in a taxonomy, you have a tree structure for all intents and purposes. You have broader and narrower terms. You have parents and children. You can have some other kinds of relationships, but they're, they're, they're pretty ill-defined. Yeah. In ontology, you take a lot of care to define the relationship between things. So where that, that, that relationship is as important an object as I've heard this said recently, it, it's first class citizen. And so not just the topics, but the relationships. So in a taxonomy, I might have something that goes like um, animals, domesticated animals, household pets, dogs. And under dogs, you might have, you know, uh, breeds of dog or something, but those are all just hierarchical topics. In an ontology, you would say, you know, dog has breed collie. Collie is breed of dog, so that those relationships between things um, are expanded from just being hierarchical tree parents and children to any relationship that that you'd like to define. And this is incredibly useful uh, for for. Um, data and information science. It's less about document retrieval and it's more about things like um, voice assistants are based on ontologies. Uh, Google Knowledge Graph is based on ontologies. So these kinds of things. So you go to so the Google Knowledge Graph is genius, right? Because you don't have to do anything to access it. You just make a Google search. So I do a Google search for Harrison Ford. And on the left, I get all these web pages about Harrison Ford. That's your typical Google search, right? You, yep. you do a search and you're um, your harvest is URLs. Uh, but on the right hand, you get this box and this box has pictures of Harrison Ford and his birth date and his wife and pictures of his kids and uh, whatever other information, films he's been in and links to his IMDb page. That's the ontology at work in the form of a knowledge graph because that's not just a box with a field filled out. There's a literal data structure behind it that says Harrison Ford has birthday, whatever Harrison Ford's birthday yeah. is. Maybe I should have looked that up before. <laughs> um, so it's a uh, it's less about hashtagging for retrieval and more about making a, a computer readable, machine readable structure about the relationships between things, so that we can make inferences. So machine learning is based on these kinds of uh, these kinds of ideas. Great, yeah, because I know, I remember one one class I had in grad school, which was a it was a uh, it was a communication theory class, but. Uh, the professor, anytime we were working with a theory or describing that we, we had to call out our uh, ontological and epistemological assumptions or tease out the assumptions that are in there. And so I, I always get interested in, in ontology when it comes to kind of knowledge and, and structures as well. 
Yeah, so the name's been co-opted a little bit from philosophy, yeah. uh, where ontology is really the study of things that are, and so you can see why they co-opted the name. But um, right. um, but it, it has a lot to do with, um, and you might have done this in answering the kind of questions you just described from the professor, make a bubble diagram. I have a bubble that's a thing and a line to another thing. So yep. when you see the conspiracy theory Glenn Beck style boards, it's just a bunch <laughs> of bubbles and lines, and the lines don't mean anything. The lines mean, I assert a connection. Well, that's not really good enough. You have to be able to name that edge and say right. exactly what connection you're asserting. Does it go both ways? Is it, you know, can it be weighted? Does it have more importance than another one? And so just, uh, you know, tacking strings between bubbles and the, what is it, always sunny in Philadelphia guy yeah. meme, right? <laughs> that's, uh, that's the look of it, but really it's more organized because you're actually, um, you're actually interested in the relationship between things as much as the things themselves. Thanks. Um, and I know this came up in actually one of the one of your talks over the past few years that I was in, but uh, we'd, we'd mentioned ethics, you had mentioned uh, also the the ethics of naming things and who has power to name them. And uh, a couple examples that I, I remember too that I thought were enlightening for me, because I think a lot of people might brush past them or, or, or you know, me as a white male with privilege might but uh, remember one time country listing. Mm -hmm. who, re who, you know, is, is Palestine a country, who recognizes a country and then also gender, but, you know, or gender or sex when in drop downs, who's even saying what gets to be in there is almost forcing an identification call. And so I was just really curious uh, if you could talk about the ethics a little bit that go into some taxonomy work or ethical yeah. concerns. Yeah, those are great examples um, uh, that you remember from the talk because that's is what I'm really interested in, um, you know, as an erstwhile philosopher and whatever, yeah. is that the person who gets to name things has a power, right? When you start seeing major corporations applying pressure, social pressure, maybe for financial reasons, but let's leave that side of it alone. Right. You know, maybe it's market driven um, as where um, former governor Pence tried to, you know, scare all the gay businesses out of Indiana and all the big businesses in Indiana went, wait, wait, those people are consumers. And the whole yeah. thing got reversed. So when major corporations start to on their web forms have multiple listings that are not just binary gender that has an effect on the world at large you see that i'm just going to make something up and i don't know if they're doing it that nike is doing it when you register on their website or something again made yeah. that up don't know that puts pressure on other big large organizations and small organizations say because it normalizes it so who has the power in an organization is it the guy who designs a website it seems a little random. I mean, right. um, so is it the information architect and does he have to consult with stakeholders before putting other prefer not to respond or whatever on a, um, or right. who, who can list a country or who can, um, uh, so even if I'm making a nominally objective um, list of 10,000 topics to classify a corpus of science material, what topics to include and not include in there, and what they're called um, has to be a very carefully considered ethical negotiation because I can look at a topic and say, mm, I'm not sure I call it that. That seems yeah. a little sketchy. But if everyone in the field calls it that, how do you negotiate? If you decide that you go to the organization, they have to decide that they're going to run forward with a progressive banner and say, nope, we're changing it to this. We're not going to. So the most uh, recent one I encountered here, I was talking to a friend just yesterday who's looking for a house. And he, uh, and he said, well, and I was looking at this one and something, something about the master bedroom. And I, I said, you know, uh, 
I don't know about this because I haven't researched it yet, but one of the things bubbling up on Twitter about how, you know, we need to make sure, right, right there's this, been this discussion about master and slave um, components in, uh, in uh, uh, hardware architecture mm-hmm. and how maybe that's something that we can revisit. seems very obvious. Master and slave kind right. of coded speech that normalizes, right. Does master bedroom come from the same thing or is it just master of the house? Is this a slave area that, or is it... 12th century Europe, like where does this language come from? Because it sure sounds like it could be. And so as we were talking on the phone about it, he went and looked it up. It comes from the early 20th century and it's very much a master of the house thing. But as he was researching it, he found discussions in something like the Association of American Realtors are already having an internal discussion about maybe we call it the primary bedroom. Yeah. Um, So making the decision for your organization that you're going to take that progressive banner and run with it makes a statement about your organization where you're probably trying to remain politically neutral so as not to alienate yeah. alienate you know a big chunk of your consumer base so the the just something as simple as um I have a 10,000 term taxonomy about science I'm using to classify a bunch of content and under science I have anthropology and anthropology I have what do I have do I have man do I have homo sapiens? Do I have human beings? Do I like what? Because man is a term of art, right? Yeah. In a way, but it's also super loaded and um, right. overly patriarchal and hierarchical. And how do you reconsider this? And But then let's say you make that decision to go with the progressive label instead of the label man. You still need to be able to surface people who come to your website and search for the old term right so there's background architecture about equivalencies and other things that you have to take into account when you're when you're making these decisions so um i feel that taxonomists and librarians and information scientists and information architects have a lot of power and responsibility about what we call things and how we organize them because um it reflects values this goes back to the you know, supposed neutrality of machine learning and facial recognition and other things in tech where we get a bunch of white techies in a room and they're all white guys and we make a decision because it seems objective to us, but in fact, it's not objective at all. And we have to be careful to examine our um, suppositions and to make sure we include a plurality of voices um, uh, when we consider these kinds of things. Thanks. Yeah. And on the, the AI and machine learning front, that has been one of my concerns is uh, like unintended consequences and maybe unconscious bias. Right. But, uh, uh, you know, and, and I feel like when that's not checked, it's almost like you're, you're accelerating your bias where the, the claim outward is it's not by, it's the machine doing it, but the, the machine is built on what you programmed. And I, one example that I saw that I appreciated was um, uh, it was somebody who just went through their their list of um, uh, drivers. Sorry, it was like for Uber, mm-hmm. uh, and it was um, it was basically here here's here are the drivers I've had for the past month, and then they just put them into like Word or some other word, and how many were uh, flagged as a misspelling, right? But you know, yes, that's, that's totally. somebody's name, and so like like Muhammad might have been mis you know you might want to check the spelling on this where like Jim or Dave just automatically passes spell check for example, or um, I know a, um, a sort of a digital asset management librarian whose last name is Fu F U, and she's constantly complaining on Twitter that she has these web forms that won't validate her name because it has to be at least two characters. Yes, yeah, I have. Uh, like, I have a wow. Friend. <laughs> 
I have a friend, uh, his first name is Bo and it's B-O. And uh, yeah, he's had trouble on, on documents too, because uh, it's like the, then the response message, your, your first name must be more than three letters. No, <laughs> just talk to my parents. Talk to the, the talk, talk to, to the my county. parents. Yeah, <laughs> somebody, but somebody had to make that decision. Right. Somebody designed, you know, there's whether you do it literally or sort of um, conceptually, when you build a database of any kind, there's sort of a table that you fill out that says field, you know, yeah. limit requirement, you know, and you can say two characters or no limit or, but someone went, well, at least three. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, uh, question, another taxonomy question for you, and this is based on a talk you gave a couple of years ago that I absolutely love. But is a hot dog a sandwich? Ah, so that was uh, <laughs> that was one of my best received talks ever because I totally glommed onto this meme that was going around and made it my talk. So, I think a hot dog is a sandwich, um, and I can talk a little bit about why. Although the really it's about who gets to call it a sandwich and why that would be important. So I guess to me, like if I slice the edge of the hot dog bun so that the sides weren't connected, does that overcome people's objection that it's not two slices of bread? Because that thin connection of the bread does not seem to be, so it seems to me a sandwichness. The, the, the concept of a sandwich is that you can pick something up with your hands and eat it. It's like a self can so a wrap is a sandwich and a burrito is a sandwich and a taco is a sandwich because they all conform to the my personal idea of sandwichness, right? Yeah. So it just doesn't have to be made of so it was a but then you get into like so if a wrap is a sandwich, what if I have a lettuce wrap instead of a tortilla wrap? Now it doesn't even have any starch on it. Is that still a sandwich? so? Is a dumpling a sandwich? So the, clearly the idea can spiral out of control, which is obviously uh, part of the fun. Um, but uh, what's interesting was seeing how terribly personal people's reactions. Yes. Because I think a hot dog's obviously a sandwich, and the idea that it wasn't is kind of confusing to me. But like, well, then what does it matter? So, am I designing a menu for my family restaurant? Do hot dogs go under sandwiches with hamburgers and uh, au jus? Is an open face sandwich a sandwich? <laughs> right. The knife and fork. So, my view on open face sandwiches, you know, is that, or even like a smothered sandwich. There was this place in. Um, did you guys used to have Alfalfa's Deli? Was that like a small regional chain? Did you have that in Iowa City? Uh, not, like a, not while I was here. But. It was this little deli that used, they used to have in the malls in Cedar Rapids. And they made this great sandwich. So it was like a roast beef sandwich. And they would put it in the sandwich press with like cream of mushroom soup dumped all over it. Very Midwestern, right? Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> and it would come out hot and you eat it with a knife and fork. And so that's still a sandwich. I mean, not, it's not my fault you dumped something all over it so you can't pick it up. <laughs> it, what, <laughs> it's a personal decision one of the things in your talk too it's like it, it in some ways it, it's it's fun to have that debate but it actually came to legal precedent i, I can't remember the case i i want to say it was in massachusetts i can't remember yeah, it was about but, a burrito it was about burritos so there was a chipotle or something i think it was either a chipotle or a chipotle like restaurant that wanted to open up in a strip mall and uh, there was a sandwich shop in this. This is outside Boston somewhere. Yeah. There was a sandwich shop in the same strip mall that had in their contract no other, you can't rent to another sandwich shop. The very standard stuff, right? You know, try and keep, right. you know, 
uh, fewer than 17 Starbucks per block and stuff like that. (laughs) And so when this burrito restaurant tried to open, they sued the landlord uh, and it went to court. And so a judge in Massachusetts had to actually bring um, a chef in to be a subject matter expert who tested that. um, I think it was that a burrito was not a sandwich and they let the restaurant open, which seems like a mistake to me. Yeah, that was, uh, I, I think that was it. And, uh, you know, shortly after he gave that talk, I actually had a, a lunch and learn with my design team. And uh, we debated and had, we were you know, people on whiteboards on, you know, what are the characteristics of a sandwich? Like, you, you, is it starch? Is it bread? Is it that I can basically take it and go, right? Like, like maybe the old, the old story, you know, or, you know, might be hypocritical, but the Earl of Sandwich liked to play poker. So he, or card, so he needed a hand Whist or right? something. Yeah, yeah, and uh, right. Know. So he wanted something that he could eat with one hand. Right, that's a self-contained thing. So that seems so. It's less about the structure and more about the the food concept, which is something that you can, you know, um, but, to me. But then you really do have to like break it down, and like taxonomy comes down to breaking down the definitions of things, yep. like. Why are you going to say, as we like to say, that this goes here? Why are you going to put this under that? Like, that seems very simple. Oh, well, people are going to think of it that way. So that's fine. There are, there are, there are sort of um, uh, different kinds of taxonomies, and some are looser than others. If I, have a, if I have a website, I'm designing a website, and I'm designing a website for a pet store, um, I might have like dogs and dogs doesn't mean dogs. Dogs means the topic of dogs. So I can have dogs, dog food, dog supplies, doggy beds, whatever. Right. If I'm building a content classification taxonomy, dog food's not a dog. Like, right. Dog food's related to dogs, but dog food's not a dog. So if I put something as a subcategory of dogs, that means all those things are dogs and that's much stricter. And if you're building an ontology that's going to do machine learning, you sure don't want dog food to be a dog. (laughs) You want to actually construct a node, you know, a link between them that says dogs eat dog food. Dog food is eaten by dogs. And that's over here under pet food, which is under food. Um, But again, in a website navigation taxonomy environment, you have to put things where people are going to find them. So one of the essential um, tensions, I think, in taxonomy is like, what is it versus where are people going to look for it so that they can find it? And there's sort of a sliding scale of how far you can go depending on your your application. Thanks. A uh, question for you, too, with uh, how, how did you end up in taxonomy if we went from classics and music to taxonomy? Um, so a little bit by accident, I guess. Um, so, yeah, I went to a tiny liberal arts college up in Santa Fe called St. John's where we read great books of the Western world. And then I went to a conservatory in Boston and got a degree in music. And I went to Texas and did about five years in a PhD program. Uh, I had taken some years off in between there. So I was not like a 23-year-old PhD student. I was like a 30-year-old PhD yeah. student. I turned 35 and looked at the academic job market, especially in the humanities, and decided I had made a terrible life choice. Um, that perhaps I should have probably been buying lottery tickets instead of paying tuition for all these years. Now, that said, I don't regret my 11 years of college. Yeah. But um, I just sort of decided it was time to get out. So I did what a lot of people my age did at that point, is I did some freelance writing and editing. Uh, which can be really horrible. Uh, my wife's a professional book editor and proofreader, and she's been doing it for a long time, and she does fine. But I was kind of just cast, just another overeducated Gen Xer looking for freelance work, you know. 
Um, we moved back to New Mexico and I uh, answered an ad in the paper. They were looking for a metadata and database editor. They didn't even call it taxonomy or information science. And I got this job and um, started my training on the job. So I kind of fell into it. Now that said, I had done some work in the area before, although I didn't really know. My first real job, that's not fair. My, my first non-service industry job out of college. Yeah. So I, I did the you know work at the liquor store down the street and wait tables and bartend and stuff like that. But the first non-service job I got when I was still in Santa Fe, where I met my wife actually, was working for the old Schwann catalog. I don't know if, I don't know if you remember the Schwann catalog. Is that the delivery truck and the ice cream? No, nope, and... but we used to get the calls for them all the time. <laughs> okay. So it was, a, um, it was a phone book sized quarterly catalog of classical CDs. So there was a little bit of front matter, like articles and stuff. And then the bulk of it, and it really was like phone book size, was every classical CD you could buy broken down by composer and piece alphabetically listed. So we were doing metadata extraction from CD labels and catalogs, making metadata records for them, and then listing them in a publishable catalog. Um, So it really was information science work. And I had these ideas about like, we're not doing this right because the way, because I already had a music background, the way pieces are, you have opera and it has acts and the acts have, so we really need, and I sort of had this notion of how the hierarchical structure would work, although I'd never been trained in it. So I had some information science early training for a couple of years, but we didn't really, we had a very listings, I mean, it was for a publishable product, so it was a very focused sort of thing. But um, so I had that in my pocket and had some ideas about um, music and data. My dad's a programmer, and so, you know, wasn't unfamiliar with some of the principles, but I kind of fell into it sideways. Um, And, uh, but, uh, and I worked for this small shop um, here in Albuquerque uh, for about seven or eight years. And so the first time they approached me, they're like, well, you want to go to a conference and give a talk? And I was like, sure. And they were like, wait, really? Because most people who do this work, about half of them come from MLIS backgrounds and the other half are just natural introverts. They want to sit at their desk and play with the words and the data. And they'd rather like gnaw their arm off than talk to a customer or something. And I used to teach undergraduate music at Texas. Like, I don't care. You want want me to go to a conference and give a talk? Yeah, great. What are we talking about? (laughs) (laughs) So I sort of uh, early on hit the lecture circuit. Uh, Not quite, but, you know, went to information and lots of publishing conferences and started giving talks about it. Um, uh, And, you know, I didn't have any problem with that because I came from like I said, the background of doing it. I'm what passes for an extrovert in this business. Cool. A, a, a couple things then to touch on. One was because you were talking about music and then that just made me think of more of the standard kind of record store back in the day and some of the, the taxonomy challenges of like, is what genre does it like making a call? Where do you, you know, where do you put somebody? And, and some of those old references where the music publisher would try to help you along, but it, File under. <laughs> File under, totally. Yep. So at what point, like I remember when there were still record stores and malls and yeah. record stores in malls and stuff. Like at what point did rap and hip hop get pulled out of pop? Right. right. At what point did pop get bifurcated into metal and punk and, or was it all like, because at some point you used to go into the store, there was like jazz classical and pop and like, that was it. And like Captain and Tennille and Rush and Public Enemy were all in pop. Like that was all the same thing, right? (laughs) Um, Sam Goody and uh, uh, I'm trying to remember what the other, you know. Music Land, Sam Goody. Music Land, totally, yep. Tower. 
and tower. Oh man, when I moved to Boston, they still had this huge tower. I think it closed while I was living there, but three stories, the whole third story was classical. Like it was, it was crazy. And so what point do, so genre classification is one of the hardest problems in taxonomy because it's, seems easy but it's pretty subjective like yep. classical so you mean so classical was a period that ended in like 1820 something yeah. right so when you really mean art music oh and so like oh now we're making value judgments about uptown yeah. versus downtown and right, um right stuff like that and uh which really uh gets interesting in like the 60s um, in New York City, there was your uptown scene and your downtown scene, right? You got your Met and your Carnegie Hall and all that stuff. And then you got your like uh, crazy, you know, night long psychedelic soaks, uh, tape recording minimalist stuff that we all, that's all classical music now. That's all, that's all art music. And so when Glass, Philip Glass made yep. the jump from downtown to uptown, he took a bunch of heat for it. Like he had betrayed the downtown scene and was selling out and going to the, and then in 79, he did this sort of famous uh, Cuddy Sark ad. Have you ever seen this? No. Yeah, it's a magazine, Philip Glass, Hawking yep. Cuddy Star. There's only 12 notes, but a man can enjoy his, I don't remember how it goes, yeah. but you can, if you Google it, you can find it. And there was this big rift about downtown versus uptown because the downtown scene was closer to crazy trance pop, but like yep. it was still art, finger quote, art music. And so today that all goes under a classical, which is a complete myth. So like where, where you break down genres. And I had a Twitter conversation, I think with Jorge Arango a while back, because it seems to me that pop is anything that's not art music and under pop, like rock is a subgenre because pop means popular, but pop is also a very specific genre of rock. And we were totally crossing strands. This was about the Pet Shop Boys. And I'm like, no, it's rock. It's rock. He's like, no, it's not rock. They don't call it rock. It's pop. I'm like, but all rock is pop. And so <laughs> even the simplest, uh, most, the highest level of the genre classification, like we were missing each other because, you know, basic problem is that language is ambiguous right 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 <laughs> yeah and that's in, in actually you know thinking about uh, books movies music to genre stuff to me is so interesting because what makes it part of a genre but if everything's the same nobody will want anymore right so then like how how do you push one how is how is a movie still considered a western right what are what are the characteristics of it i, I always find that interesting just kind of in a novelty and redundancy aspect of looking at genres well, and there are such specifics and tiny subgenres in any niche corner because that's just the world we live in that like what appears to me as metal to a metalhead, that's 7,400 different things Yes, that yep. gets way down. There's like six bands in Finland that make up this one sub, sub, subgenre <laughs> yep. that I'm like completely clueless about, but... But, and so when, like, almost sociologically speaking, like, when does something have enough weight that it gets its own taxonomy germ, that it gets its own designation of a subgenre? Because in a lot of ways, as soon as you name and classify something, you've ruined it, right? You've brought it into the academy, you've codified it, and you've crystallized it. You've, you've um, ossified it in, in a certain way, right? It doesn't have as much room to expand and throw its elbows because it's been, it's invented its own category. So I knew this... Um, I knew this uh, this uh, person when I was in Texas who was, I was in the theory department. I was a music yeah. theorist and she was a musicologist. Um, but all the musicologists had to take at least one theory class. So a lot of them signed up for this uh, analysis of popular music class, which was a hoot. 
um uh we we were going round and round about like what constitutes twang like something has enough twang to be right it has like this like authenticity sort of anyway so her area of research like her master's degree her area of research was on english uh, british psychobilly fandom (laughs) i didn't even know psychobilly was a thing outside of like some weird parts of the 90s in like central texas reverend Um, Reverend horton heat Reverend Horton Heat's the most famous example. Yeah, so, but yep. there's a whole sort of subculture around right. it, and somehow it migrated to England, and so that's what she studied was like British psychodel- psychobilly fandom, which that was just fascinating, <laughs> fascinating to me. Oh, thanks. Uh, one thing I should tell you too is because this was in one of your talks is also the classification problem of pine nuts. I gotta say, oh, yeah. time, anytime I'm at the grocery store, I'm not shopping for them, but when I see where they're located, I do chuckle. Oh man, you should take pictures and we should do it like a Twitter stream or something because like, so one of the interesting things about the jump from traditional library science to electronic information science was that in traditional library science, the problem was very much that you had one copy of a book and you had to decide where to put it so that people would find it. So if I have a, I don't know, I'm going to try and make something up. I have a like, I have a Malaysian cookbook. Do I put it in cookbooks or do I put it in like Malaysian culture stuff, right? I have to make that choice. In electronic media, we don't have to make that choice. You can put it, in finger quotes again, in both places. You can tag it with both things so people can find it. That's not a problem. That's not an issue. We don't have to... We don't have to have one copy we have to locate. Right. In a grocery store, the information architecture is very different because you do have to put things in one place. You cannot be stocking pine nuts in 17 different places, right? You got to put them in nuts or baking needs, which is where I found them, or sometimes they're in bulk foods or whatever. So like that old library science classification project, uh, problem solving structure that architecture is still very much in play in physical retail spaces that it's not in play in electronic retail space and and this actually causes problems so one of the, i think one of the when i first got into this field so this is maybe 10 years ago the first taxonomy boot camp conference i went to the keynote speaker was this woman whose name i don't remember and i hope she's not there anymore um, who had just gotten the job at rei and she got to rei and the way things were listed in the catalog on the website and in the physical store weren't aligned. So she gets a catalog in the mail. She's like, oh, I wanna buy these skis for my brother. They're brand M123XYZ. She goes and puts it in the website, brand M123XYZ skis, no results. So they didn't have, now the problem of how to organize things in a store and a magazine on a website is different but they still need to have the same name across the (laughs) platform so that you can find them so she had a lot of work to do um in trying to organize now that said just to put a plug in like they're doing a great job at rei right now we both know Stuart maxwell and um his team and they're doing incredible work and they've come a long way because they realized what a what a mess they had but there's plenty of nightmare stories still out there i think e-commerce is one of the places that still kind of has to come to grips with with this um in a lot of places uh you know legendarily in the industry it's a very small field um like you can always go get a job as a taxonomist at amazon now 
it's harrowing, difficult work, and you probably will only last a couple of years. So the yeah. field is littered with veterans of the Amazon taxonomy team. Um, but they have, I mean, that categorization, all that stuff, that does not happen automatically when you just upload something. They got, there's armies of people. Um, Google and Google Maps is the same way. In fact, I just sat through, um, ending in June, about 10 weeks of a Stanford course on knowledge graphs. Did you check out any of this? I did not. I so did they not. made it free and open to the public. It was a Zoom course. It was, yeah. it, was a, it was a computer science course. So it was very different from an information science course. So their viewpoint, there's a lot more machine learning and some other stuff. But they had some people from major organizations come and talk. Basically, every class was three half-hour lectures by people in industry and stuff like that. And um, so I learned a new acronym phrase, and it's humans in the loop right? There are humans in the loop on the last mile of a lot of these, these electronic products that look like magic. And the, the analogy, the last mile analogy comes from um, logistics and package delivery, right? If I send a package to you from Albuquerque to Iowa City, getting the package from me into the system on a plane and into a distribution center in your city is relatively seamless. There's already trucks and planes and stuff going that way and it costs virtually nothing to add a package yeah. to it. Getting it from the distribution center to your house is by far the most expensive part of that process. So if I have an electronic listing on a Google map um, that has competing information, you can sort a lot of that out by algorithms, you can try and make assumptions, but at some point humans curate that and it's expensive to have them do it. Right. And it's humans in the loop on the last mile, the virtual last mile of that information loop. So a lot of things that are machine learning based, AI driven, that's true to some extent, but they're kind of paving right. over the extent to which <laughs> yeah. there's curation or refinement and other work done by, uh, by humans. Yeah, I do a lot of uh, work in the educational space. And so, you mm -hmm. know, a, a lot of digital transformation and, and I always refer to last mile to it's not it's not about getting the content, and the data packets, you know, across the big pipes. It's, it, when it hits the school building, right, is is the Wi-Fi infrastructure strong enough for X number of students to hit it at the same time? Device control, right? All of it's, yeah. Yes. When, when you're drawing it on a whiteboard, just moving data packets from here to here, yeah, that part's great. But that part's easy, right? As soon as it gets kind of that hyper local, it's all the context things that can kind of <laughs> knock it off path. And so when I was um, at my last shop, uh, we did a fair amount of work for people in the education space categorizing content for retrieval. And there was a lot of interest in um, sort of automating remediation for test questions. So I have a, so I, my, this whole thing is wrapped in yep. a question yep. for you about, have yeah. you seen this? So I take a standardized test, I miss 10 questions. So the idea is that those questions are tagged from some kind of taxonomy and that the content is tagged, not just at the book level or the chapter level or the subchapter level, but like at the paragraph yeah. level. So that if I miss a question, you can, without having any human curation, you can automatically redirect me based on the topic to the paragraph in the book that's gonna tell me the correct answer for me to uh, get remediated on the information that I missed. And this seemed to me, not that it's a terrible idea, but that it's kind of crazy without any curation because that, paragraph doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists in a subchapter, which exists in a chapter, which is contextual. Right. So if I didn't understand the beginning of the chapter yeah. or the end of the chapter, yeah. what's to say that I'm going to be able to read this one paragraph and get remediated like the correct information? Because information isn't quite as tidy as all that, is it? It's not. No. 
it's not just a quantitative, no, no, it was seven. You said four. Well, that's different than, than no, the actual causes of the 30 years war were right. That's not a, that's not the same thing. Yep. So have you experienced that? Have you, well, I've done, I've done a lot of work with some big assessment companies and, um, the amount of work that goes in at a psychometrician level to to test and kind of try to isolate what variables might be at play as well, so that what becomes a valid item is is a big question. And and then when you're talking about more um, kind of uh, normative and criterion testing for like big standardized tests, it's like where there might even be challenges in adaptive testing. And so there's, I know there's big debates in, in the field. I'm not doing it, it justice, but it's, there, there's a lot of work going under the hood. And it's also really interesting on uh, what, what's the work that the computer should do and what's the work that the human should do to, to sort out uh, those elements. Just basically right as you described is some of these where the context can be so variable versus, you know, an arithmetic answer. Okay, he's str- struggling with this concept or the standard those are fairly easy. And I think that's why you, t- you tend to see more math generated uh, um, sure. uh, uh, test items than you, than you do in the other fields. Uh, one, uh, another thing I wanted to throw your way, are you familiar with Kenneth Burke philosopher? Yeah. It seems oh. like lots of departments would try to grab him, but uh, Burke's dramatism theory is re- like a really good way at looking at cycles in the world, but also I think one of the things, I believe it was terministic screens or linguistic screens is that he used, but if we don't have a word for it, it doesn't exist. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I always thought that was really interesting. And and uh, so then then one of my examples with that is always a bit like my first box of Crayola crayons, right? There was red, there was a green, and, but then I was introduced to blue-green and green-blue, but mm-hmm. then aquamarine and just then also the way, then your mind can start to see those. So I'm always curious too, the late, not only the labels that are used because they said that gives power, but also how just as a human, we can, we can start to expand by seeing what other labels might be out there. But I was saw that as a, a really interesting human element is that if you don't have a word for it, it doesn't exist, but it, it could be there physically in front of you, but you wouldn't like, I don't know what that is. I don't know how to describe it. No, I mean, language shapes, but it also bounds yep. our understanding and the way we, the way that we think about things. And it's really hard to step out of the way you think about things because it's the way you think about things. So it's very <laughs> immersive. So that's why learning other languages, which is not, not something I'm great at, but I've dabbled in over years and years is so weird because learning. So when I was at St. John's, we, we took a couple of years of ancient Greek um, and I'd never taken Latin or German. I had, you know, yeah. romance languages in high school or whatever, but like, um, the idea that nouns decline like verbs decline is like you're thinking of the world in a very different way than we're thinking right. of the world. And like that gets um, expanded the more foreign, as it were, from wherever point you're starting at is. And like it's very hard to get out from around. And that, again, I, my belief is that the only way out of this is to try and get as many, you know, points of view in as as possible the only way out of your subjectivity is inner subjectivity very few things are actually objective right. counting numbers chem- chemical elements you know the list is pretty short um uh everything yeah. else is labeled subjectively by us and like right abstraction is one of the wonderful things about human consciousness that lets us um develop complex text but every abstraction loses like loses some specificity because it has to gloss over it in the service yeah. of you 
getting to the whole. And so every time, so I love metaphors. I think metaphors are great, but every metaphor is false, right? If you try and extend the metaphor down to um, some level, like it's going to break down and you can't use it as a reasoning tool. It's a quick reference guide, not a reasoning tool, right? Yeah, I feel like it's like the like the George Box quote, right? I mean, like one is like we all use models or mental, but but Box, uh, all models are wrong. Some are useful. That's exactly correct. Um, and the metaphor is a model, right? Yeah, and I was yeah, going to say all, in all language, models are wrong. that's my one of my favorite things is when I do hear uh, you know different uh, different colloquial elements from different languages uh, for like a similar description, like uh, I don't know, like ass over tea kettle, right? Or, or diff- and then you, you hear how other languages, what, what metaphors they've put together to, for, I don't know, idiomatic language for me is just, it's so fun and fascinating just to see uh, even, even regional dialects, right? In the States, you're still using the same language and then, you know, moving to different languages, but idioms seem to be an interesting area for highlighting some of that. But idioms are really terrible for things like machine, machine classification. Right. <laughs> um, machine, and so machine classification, um, tr- that is when I say that, what I mean is like trying to apply taxonomy hashtags to a document to classify it are easier with scientific papers than they are with humanities papers. And they're easier because they're easier with literal language than they are with figurative speech. Figurative speech is the bane of auto classifiers. Um, uh, I did some work. I, I want to be extra careful and not drop yeah. any names. I know I'm not allowed to, but this huge, huge document repository that had all kinds of content, science, humanities, everything, all this stuff. And some of it was even like poetry content. And like, it was just like trees. I'm like, yeah, that's not a tree. It's a metaphor. Like, like, so my joke was we should just classify all the poems as to be about death. <laughs> But really, figurative speech, like, you can't teach a machine, unless you're going to program in each idiom. Right. But, like, you know, the classic example is a bird in the hand is not about birds, and it doesn't mean the paper that you wrote is about birds. It's like not, that's not what's going on there. So, um, you know, you almost need to just take a list of idioms as if you could make a complete list of idioms, take a list of common idioms and just exclude them from the classifier so that they just ignore them because it's, it's really difficult. Yeah, so that's why, I mean, I'm not afraid the robots are taking over. We're so, when we say artificial intelligence, we still really mean directing natural language and parsing it into something that the ontology can be matched to to provide an answer. There's no reasoning or thinking going on right. beyond feed it. We are not close to Skynet. Not even not close. Yet. <laughs> that is not the problem we have right now. So, Bob, a question I have for you uh, that I ask all, all my guests is it's, about advice, so either good advice you've received, or uh, again, kind of stealing from Austin Kleon, steal like an artist. When you when you give advice, sometimes you're talking to your younger self. So, any advice that you wish you would have had earlier, or good advice that served you through your career? It's so hard because I feel like I've changed directions. I'm not sure whose advice I I took, but um, yeah. So, I guess like the sort of advice to younger self. Yes. sort of position is that um, as something that's really hard to teach someone who's younger, but like life is really short and the older you get, the faster the years fly by. If there's something you want to do, go try and do it. Like you only get one shot at this. You got it. You want to go be a rock musician, man, go, go be a rock musician. If you fail on, you fall on your face and at least you try to do it. Like go try. Cause I get to the point. 
47, you know, like, I'm like, oh man, I I really want to do that. And I turn around and a year's gone by. I'm like, oh, guess I didn't do that this year. God, geez. But, um, in the field, I mean, my advice to people who want to be in the information science field, which again is orthogonal to and overlaps with the information architecture field, but isn't exactly the same. It's a little right. less designy and a little le- a little more data e. So there's a yeah. Venn diagram at work there. Is that the field's pretty small? You can do you could do well in the field. You know, go find someone who knows what they're doing. It's whether you went and got a degree in it or not, if this is something you're interested in, like there's plenty of good people and resources out there that are willing to help. They're willing to talk to you, promote you and um, give you speaking slots. And there's, there's lots of room in this small space for people, for people to succeed. I guess my third piece of advice is almost like aspirational or like, um, that's not right. It's almost uh, wishful thinking. So one of the things that happens in this field is that we have a lot of talks, presentations, webinars, conference talks, all these things, right? And I feel like I'm still a novice at this, but like this comes from when I was getting trained to do academic writing. So when I was an academic writing about music, my advisor at Texas told me, let the example generate the prose. So you lay out your musical examples and it writes your paper for you. What I don't want, so my advice is don't put bullet points of what you're saying up on the screen while you're saying it. Have a thing that, <laughs> have the thing that the point you want to make on the slide yeah. and then tell me about it because I just can't sit through bullet pointed list presentations anymore. And like, there's so many designers, but I'm not a designer. You yeah. know, I feel like I've gotten better at this, but like my rule is like, Man, unless I'm really trying to, like, a bullet-pointed slide is an exclamation point that says, major takeaway. You can't have slide after slide after slide after slide. I know that's a really minor thing, but when you said advice, that was my thing. So my advice is let the example generate the prose. Let the example generate the prose. Don't write the prose and then make slides, and then you don't have any idea for your slides, so you just put the prose up on the slide. All right. Bob, it was an absolute pleasure. Good to good to catch up. I hope that uh, in the not too distant future, we're able to see each other in uh, same time, same place. <laughs> I hope so too, Matt. Thanks so much for having me on. I hope we uh, hope we wandered around all the stuff you were hoping to wander around. Yeah, this was it was great. It was great. And if you ever make it back to Iowa, make sure to uh, swing back to Iowa City again. I would love to, and I'm I am looking forward to seeing you in person. All right. Take care. Thanks. Matt. Bye.